I was looking over my notes, and I realized the last time that I taught on this passage, which is the second half of Hebrews 12, was in 2005, when um, I had the opportunity to preach twice uh, while Midtown Fellowship, which some of you guys go to Midtown, Midtown, the downtown that used to be, Rocket Town, uh, they were going through Hebrews, and Randy asked me to preach twice during their series on Hebrews. They asked me to preach the two hardest passages on Hebrews, and I always wondered, you know, was that intentional? Did he just skip town? Um, Hebrews chapter 6, which we covered about how um, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, if they fall away, to come back. It's a, it's a difficult passage, and you can go listen to when we talked about that on the podcast if you want. Look up the Belmont RUF podcast on iTunes if you want to hear about that one. And this passage tonight is also one of these difficult warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And um, it, it's, these things can be difficult. Um, I wanted to say, I remember back then saying, you know, bring in the, the outside guy to kind of to talk about these passages. Way to go. But, you know, as hard as it is to teach on a passage like this, and as soon as we read it, you're going to get what I'm talking about, um, it's really vital that we wrestle with passages like this. I remember years ago when I was in college, coming upon a book called uh, The Christian Mind by a guy named Harry Blamiers. People today don't really know who he is, but that's a fabulous book. It was a very important book for me on how to think Christianly about all of life rather than just thinking about Christian things. It's a really important book. He wrote it in 1964, the year I was born. He was a student of C.S. Lewis's, who then actually, after he wrote that book, for years and years, he taught English lit and wrote a book on James Joyce Ulysses that they still use, I think, over at Vanderbilt. Um, and then he went back to teaching theology. So he's just an interesting guy and lived out even that idea. But there was one point in the book where he says, listen, never defend Christianity like it's your invention. You're a witness to the truth. You're not the originator of it. That was very helpful to me because it set me free to say, you know, there are things in the Bible that I don't like, things that if I could change them, I would. But of course, I'm always haunted by um, some other words by a guy who was also influential on my thinking, a guy named A.W. Tozer. He said, no man, no woman has the right to edit revealed truth. Because of the nature of the Bible, we don't get to just pick and choose what we like. Actually, St. Augustine, you know what, 16, 1700 years ago, said that if you accept what you like in the Gospels, and reject what you don't like. It's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And a lot of people, I think, kind of edit out the things that they don't like. Remember, there was a great Bible teacher who went on to be with the Lord now named R.C. Sproul. He said one time, the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like. Because either you need to change or God needs to change. Meditate on the stuff you don't like. It's true, but it's nonetheless difficult. And it, sometimes things are difficult because they call us to heroic obedience. Some things are difficult because it's just hard to understand. As a matter of fact, um, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.16 that Paul writes some things in his letters that are difficult to understand. So there are things in the Bible that's like you've got to 
kind of really wrestle with, what is it even talking about here? That can be difficult too. It's one of the reasons God has given teachers to kind of wrestle with these things and, and, and spend devoted time studying Greek and Hebrew and church history and spending time reading commentaries, all that, right? Tonight's passage, though, is difficult because it's difficult. And it seems to challenge maybe our ideas of who God is and what he's like. But I think as we press through this passage tonight, I hope that we'll see this. It's so important that we not trivialize God. Because if you trivialize God, you trivialize the gospel. And we can't afford to do that. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm actually going to start reading at verse 11. I know that overlaps with last week, but I wanted to kind of just remind us of the context. He was talking about God disciplining those he loves, disciplining his sons and daughters. And then the, the greatest understatement in probably all of the Bible is Hebrews 12 verse 11. For the moment, or at the time, you could also translate it, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Duh. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, because God is at work to train you, to make you more beautiful, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It's important to remember, healing is the ultimate goal of what God is doing, both in us and in his world. And then verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he, meaning Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to that, to, sorry, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's talking about the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law on Mount Sinai. It was a frightening scene. But you've not come to that, in verse 20, even though they, meaning the Israelites, could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You've not come to that. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, then, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, 
Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, again talking about in the Old Testament and Mount Sinai, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Told you. It's not an easy passage. It's a scary passage at first glance. But there's more to it than that. Let's pray and then we'll dig into it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you um, speak words we need to hear and that you don't just flatter us and speak words that itching itching ears love to hear. But Lord, you speak truthfully, honestly, and we thank you for that. So few people speak truthfully to us. We thank you that you are a God of truth, as difficult as that is sometimes. We pray now that you'd help us, you'd help us to receive your word as what it truly is, your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said, this is a scary passage at first glance. You've got phrases like, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. We're warned about becoming like Esau. And you may not know that story, but Esau basically deserved the inheritance, should have inherited the family's, you know, everything. And he sold his inheritance for a bowl of porridge when he was hungry. Which is to say, he did not value the privilege of being the firstborn son. Considered it of no value. There's that great little phrase in Isaiah 53 where it talks about Israel and how they regarded Christ when he came. And they said, we esteemed him not. It means we didn't consider him weighty or valuable. That's Esau. He didn't consider the privileges, the inheritance, weighty or valuable. We're told that as frightening as Mount Sinai was, when God gave the Ten Commandments, so frightening that even Moses himself was terrified, the living God that we have to deal with is a consuming fire who's going to shake heaven and earth. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that they like the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament, I'd say, have you read the Bible? Probably not. He shelters us under his wings, is in the Psalms, the Old Testament. Our God is a consuming fire, is in the New Testament. Don't ever make the silly, superficial mistake of thinking that God used to be like this angry Old Testament God, and now he's like a teddy bear, New Testament father. No, it's much more complicated than that. He's always been a consuming fire. 
But now we have a mediator who's opened a way for us to come boldly before the throne. And unless you understand who he is, you'll never appreciate that privilege. Trivialize God and you trivialize the gospel. See, as we look closer at this passage, you see that it's not just a scary passage, it's a passage about the amazing privileges that we have in Christ and how amazing it is that we have them and pleading, urging with us not to turn away. Again, if you trivialize God, you trivialize the gospel and the privileges that it brings. So here's how we're going to break it down. First, pay attention to the serious warning. Second, don't trivialize God. And third, don't trivialize the gospel and the privileges it brings. So let's look first at the warning. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it become defiled. The first thing I want you to note is that this is a corporate command. This is, these words are spoken to a church as a community to care for the community. It's not just an individual passage for you. And you see that. All the, the emphasis, see to it that no one fails. Don't leave anybody behind. You all take on the responsibility of keeping one another tenderhearted toward the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone. See that no one fails to obtain the gross, grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up in your community and causes trouble. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. It's not just about you individually saying, oh, well, I, you know, I guess I'm kind of sexually immoral. I, I really am. It's saying, listen, the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you ever thought about this way, but the Ten Commandments were not instituted to put Israel back into bondage. As a matter of fact, the Ten Commandments start with this preface this is one of the reasons I'm opposed usually to posting the Ten Commandments on courtroom walls, because they never include the preface. And if you don't include the preface, you miss the point. The preface says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. Therefore, live this way. Eugene Peterson says the Ten Commandments are conditions for community. Live this way and your community will flourish. Honor sex. Honor your word. Honor people's lives and their property. Honor God. So it's the same thing here. For your Christian community to be healthy, you actually have to care about what people are doing with their bodies and with their computers. You do. You, if you're going to be part of the Christian community, this is serious stuff. You remember, you know, am I my brother's keeper? That was not a good, that was not a good thing. Right? When Cain says that, he's saying that to cover up sin. And the blood of Abel 
cried out. But the blood of Abel cries out in condemnation. The blood of Jesus cries out in forgiveness. But the community matters. The community matters. In other words, the whole church bears responsibility to see that no one misses the grace of God and that the whole church is growing in holiness. In other words, the church should never be a place where only the strong survive. The body, the Bible tells us in many places, is only as strong as its weakest members. If you decide to turn back from following Jesus, you need to know that it affects the rest of us. It's never just your decision. You know, whenever I do a wedding, I always say marriage is for more than just two. It's for more than just the two people. But that means that divorce is for more than just two as well. Right? And some of you know that firsthand. You've experienced that. Right? It's never just about two people and what they do. So it is with turning back from the Lord and the covenant community. It's never just your personal decision because you're part of a body. You're part of a body, and that should manner. The warning specifically here is a warning to not give up the privileges and the relationship that has been given them through Jesus. And we are to be on the lookout, brothers and sisters, for those who are being tempted to give it up. And we need to help them. You know, I think we're sometimes so passive we just don't want to interfere. We don't want to be noisy, nosy. But as a pastor that you know, I've served under many years used to say, who in your life can give you a life-giving rebuke when you need it? I, I think it goes twofold. One, you need to be the person who's willing, groaning for people to become more like Christ, willing to even sacrifice your own comfort at times. But you also need to be the kind of person who welcomes interference. And in your moments of strength, you need to say to trusted friends, if I go crazy, I need you to get in my way. Do it now if you have at all the strength. If you don't, say, Lord, I believe I should do that. Help me in my unbelief. And start praying to that end because the body needs each other. Apostasy is a real thing. People do turn back from following Jesus. But the Bible says that that may be a sign that they weren't really believers in the first place. There's this passage in 1 John chapter 2 where he says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and if you would have you have and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now what's being talked about there? Well, what's John, the apostle, is writing to a church whose leaders have left the faith. The leaders have left the faith, and the church is reeling. And the Apostle John says, look, continuance is the test of reality. That's why this is not something to be played around with. Don't flirt 
with danger and say, I'm going to turn back from the Lord for a while because I know that I shouldn't be doing this, but you know, I really want this. And after I indulge in this for a while, then maybe I'll come back. Don't play that game. You don't know where it might end. And if you have friends that are doing that, please pray, speak a word of warning. The Bible encourages us to warn people, but notice this. Notice the warnings here are not just warnings to put the fear into people. And I know it may seem like that because of what I've been saying, but here's the thing. The focus on this passage is on the privileges that we have in Jesus. In other words, how are we supposed to help people who are tempted to turn back? Are we to frighten them, to put the fear of God in them? No. While we are to speak that this stuff matters and it's serious, the focus of this passage and what the writer of Hebrews is doing, even here to people that are teetering on the brink, is to speak about the privileges they have. Right? Even as he says at the very beginning, in verse 28, let us be grateful for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and worship God with reverence and awe. That's where the passage ends, right? The warning is designed to help you understand who God is. He's a consuming fire, a consuming fire who has been made your heavenly father because of what Jesus did. How could you give that up? We're to, we're to plead the truth of what Jesus has done. So let's explore that a little bit. It talks here about how the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai was a terrifying scene, and it was. As a matter of fact, you know, God gathered all of Israel there at the base of the mountain, and he spoke in a way that all of Israel heard his voice. I don't know if you know this, but the Old Testament did not just become God's word because it was around for a really long time and people just kind of began to reverence it. Now, the reason that we understand this thing called canon, the word means rule or standard, is because built into the Old Testament itself is this rationale for canonicity. God spoke an audible voice that all of Israel heard. And Israel said, God, we can't stand it. Take Moses up on the mountain and speak to him. And then part of what God gave to Moses, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It wasn't two tablets with like a, a handful of words on there. No, he gave them all of the law. And in the law is criteria by which Israel would know in the future if someone comes along and says, I'm speaking on God's behalf, how will you know whether they truly are speaking on God's behalf? So do you understand, God spoke to where all Israel could hear. They said, go speak to Moses. And part of what give, God gives to Moses is a way for Israel to know in the future, even after Moses is dead, whether God is speaking through a prophet or not. It's in Deuteronomy 13. It's in Deuteronomy 18, right? So God cares that his people would know that he's speaking and that they would know whether he's speaking or not. Okay, 
It's a terrifying, terrifying scene. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's smoke. Right? But don't think that's just the Old Testament God. Because again, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. And in this very passage, it says that God is the judge of all. Verse 23. Now I know when I say that to a bunch of students in the 21st century, we kind of cringe a little. We're a little embarrassed about the idea that God is a judge. Even though Psalm 145 talked about praising God for his righteousness, his righteousness is the attribute by which he judges. So if ever you've praised God for his righteousness, you've actually said, it's a good thing, God, that you are a judge. And it is a good thing that God is a judge. The only people that don't like the fact that God is a judge are comfortable 21st century, late 20th century Westerners. Most people in the history of the world, world have praised God that he is a judge and that he would make all things right. Be careful about rejecting things in the gospel because they don't fit your cultural expectations because your cultural expectations are more culturally relative than you may think. Psalm 97 says, Zion rejoices in your judgment, so God. Our hope is that all things will be healed and made right. And God is a judge who will do that. So, don't trivialize God. He's a judge. And it's a good thing because there is a lot that needs to be judged and made right. Second, the glory cloud. Do you know about the glory cloud? The Shekinah glory that came down and rested on Moses. Do you remember when Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the law, it said that he shone so much that people had to hide their eyes. But the... <laughs> The glory cloud, the glory cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration came from Jesus. Do you see the difference? Look, I, I put the verse down here. It's Matthew 17, verse 2. There he, on the mount, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, because Jesus himself was the glory cloud. The presence of God. And he pulled back, he pulled back sort of the, the shade, so to speak, and let them see a glimpse of who he actually was. Moses shone so much that people couldn't look at him because he'd barely been in the presence of God. And he wasn't even able to look at God face to face. But Jesus shone from his being right? The glory cloud was frightening, but Jesus is even more glorious because Moses shining was secondary, once removed, so to speak. Who do we think that we're dealing with in worship? I've always loved this quote by Annie Dillard. Maybe you've heard this before. She says, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs, she means like the first century martyrs, sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea 
of what sort of power we so blithely invoke when we say, God, come be with us. Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. God is even more frightening than you realize. But the blood of Jesus is even more precious. And you'll never understand how precious the blood of Jesus is until you understand who God really is. J.B. Phillips wrote a fabulous little book, little book, 140 pages, with this title, Your God is Too Small. And he talked about how we tend to, well, G.K. Chesterton had put it so well, he said, God made man in his image, and man returned the compliment. In other words, God made us in his image, but we end up making God in our image. Luther had this great debate with a guy named Erasmus about theology and about God's grace and God's sovereignty and salvation. And at one point, Luther just gets so frustrated, and he's like, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. You think he's like an elevated person. You're projecting what you've experienced from your king, from your master, from your pope, from your father upon God. That will never do. God is God. And to trivialize the God, trivialize God is to trivialize the gospel. I think we don't appreciate what it means to be cleansed because we think we look pretty good already. You know, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to the greatest party you've ever been invited to. And we just think of it as kind of ho-hum because we just have this sense that it wouldn't be a party if I wasn't there. <laughs> right? That's, that's, that's the attitude that we need to pray the Lord will help us. Right? We're never filled with the kind of joy that we should. Richard Niebuhr, who's a great um, Lutheran theologian, said this about liberal theology, but I think it's true of a lot of evangelicals today. He said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ without a cross. See, we don't like judgment. We don't like wrath. We don't like the cross, really, the idea. Some people even would say it's divine child abuse, right? Right? And, and I don't think we make light of that. It's a serious thing. If the cross doesn't offend you, you maybe need to look more deeply into what it's really all about. But I pray that we wouldn't be the kind of Christians who believe that God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ without a cross. God is not nice. C.S. Lewis captured it so well, right, in the Narnia? You know, is he safe? He's not, but he's good. He's the king. That's what we're trying to get at here. Listen, I know there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's hard to hear, right? All I can tell you is the longer I've been a Christian, been reading the Bible, the more and more I see that the hard stuff is often the doorway into the most powerful joy when we go from sitting in judgment over God 
demanding that he be the way we want him to be, to sitting at his feet in awe. And my encouragement when you come to a passage like this is to turn your why questions into who questions. In other words, instead of demanding, God, why are you doing this and why are you not doing that? Instead, learn to approach God and say, who is a God like you that would even keep me weak so that I could hold on to you with every bit of strength I have? Who is a God like you that wants to reveal your power through weakness? Who even the Apostle Paul, you would give him a thorn so that he would learn to trust you even more? Who is a God like that that would risk us even misunderstanding what he's doing so that he could bring true healing from that ultimate, most difficult sin, our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency? If God is great enough for you to blame him for everything, isn't it possible that he's great enough to have reasons that we can't understand. Again, the hard things can be a doorway into understanding the most powerful things. Last point, don't trivialize the privileges that a relationship with God brings. I wanna draw out a few contrasts between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Listen, a terrifying mountain Mount Sinai was a terrifying mountain to touch it. If even an animal touched it, not even knowing what it was doing, it was to be stoned. That's holiness. You can't stand to be in the presence of holiness unless you're absolutely holy. You will be obliterated. And there's so many examples in the Bible. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, finally sees who God is, a vision of God high and holy and lifted up. Do you remember what he says? He says, I am undone. Literally in the Hebrew, I am coming apart at the seams. I am disintegrating in your presence because I've seen the Lord. When Peter in the boat recognizes who Jesus is, what does he say? Depart from me. Get away from me. I can't stand to be in your presence. This is what holiness does to us. It repels us, but it also attracts us. Have you ever known that when you think about God? Or is God just your buddy? If God is just your buddy, you'll never really understand the joy of the gospel, because God is not just your buddy. God is the holy, sovereign one, maker of heaven and earth, who invites us to come into his very presence like his beloved children. Not only do we get access to the heavenly Jerusalem, right? The city of the joy that, that Revelation says this city will have no walls. You know, ancient cities were the place of safety. It's, it's kind of exactly the opposite, right? In our day and age, you have to flip the metaphor. In, in the Old Testament world, a city was a place of safety and the wilderness was the scary place. Now in our day, we all go out in the wilderness to meet God, right? And we're scared of going into the city. The city, uh, the heavenly city in Revelation has no gates. No gates. Why? Because it's so secure, it doesn't need any. It's, it's, an, it's an image that would have made no sense to people in the ancient world. They would have been scratching their head. What? A city? Cities have gates because they're all about keeping bad people out so that we can be safe. But God's city has no gates. It doesn't need them. 
That's how solid and secure and safe it is. We've come to Jesus, the writer says. Again, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, but Jesus' blood cries out for justice for all his people who put their hope in him. We can have confidence in verse 23 because we have been enrolled in heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and they won't be blotted out. And finally, there will come a day when heaven and earth will be shaken, but we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because Jesus was shaken to the core at the cross. Let us be thankful, it says, and this is the conclusion. The thankful, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and worship God. Thankful because we receive the kingdom we didn't earn it. There are two things that drive real worship. And you see them here. One is awe. Our God is a consuming fire. Transcendence. He's so above us, we can't even begin to understand what he is, what he's like. But the other thing that drives worship is the security that we have, the unshakable kingdom that we've been given by grace. This produces intimacy. True worship is marked by reverence and intimacy. Our God is a consuming fire, and he's our Father, our Abba Father. Now, remember this was written to people in the first century, and I just want to tell you one last thing. You know, this is a church that's facing persecution. Persecution because the Romans didn't like what they were about and didn't understand what they were about. You know, the early Christians were often put to death under the charge of atheism. They were charged with atheism because they didn't believe in all the pantheon of gods. But it was a threat to the Roman Empire to not be part of the system in that way. Here's what's fascinating, though. Even with all of the persecution, the church grew like crazy. Estimates, 10,000 Christians in A.D. 100. By 300 A.D., 200 years later, do you know how many Christians there were? Six million. How did the church go from 10,000 to six million? Why would anybody become a Christian in the midst of the persecution? And there's a New Testament scholar named Larry Hurtado who wrote a book, literally this is the title, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And it's an incredible book. Kat, you've been reading the book, right? It's an incredible book. He's got lots of things that he has to say. So many of the things that you take for granted, you don't realize were brought into the world because of Christianity in the first three centuries. That's a topic for another day. Here's what I want you to understand. One of the reasons he, he cites is that Christianity had two unique offers that no other religion then or now has. Christianity offered communion and a love relationship with a transcendent God. No other religion offers that. The pagans only tried to appease the gods, keep them from being angry. Eastern religions couldn't love God because God is not personal. Christianity was so unlike every other thing that went by the name of religion in the ancient world that, as I said, Christians were often called atheists because Christianity made no sense. It offered love relationship, not just appeasing, but a love relationship with a transcendent God, a consuming fire. And 
Christianity offered assurance of salvation right now because of grace. There were other religions that had the idea of salvation, but it was something that you worked hard for and hoped that if you lived just right, you might attain it when you died. But Christianity offered the security of knowing that now, by grace, you had received an unshakable kingdom. That's why the Hebrews persevered. And they didn't just persevere. The church flourished. And it's what you see here. It's what the writer of the Hebrews is telling them. Don't trivialize God. You have something no one else has. A relationship of love with the transcendent God. And you have received by grace an unshakable kingdom. That doesn't just allow you to persevere and survive. That allowed the church to flourish in the midst of persecution. Don't you dare trivialize those things. They were life for the Christians in the first three centuries. And I dare say they can be life for us. Let's pray.